So what does Albert Einstein, Jerry Seinfeld, Dr. Seuss, and Michael Jordan all have in common? You ever wonder? The reality is they're all significant failures. Yeah, they are big time failures. Albert Einstein, when he was a child, he could not speak until he was four years old. And he was, couldn't read until he was seven years old. And many people thought he was mentally handicapped and he needed special assistance. But he went on to win the Nobel Prize and altered the world's approach to physics. Jerry Seinfeld, he went onto the nightclub to, to, for a stand-up act. His very, first, his very first time on stage, he was booed off the stage and out of the room. He was heckled. No one wanted to listen to him. He could have given up, but he came back the next day and began a career as one of the greatest comedians the world has ever seen. Dr. Seuss, we all know his, sto his stories and his great writings, but did you know his very first book was rejected by 27 different publishers? It would have been really easy for him just to give up and walk away. And Michael Jordan, on his high school basketball team, he was cut. He was not good enough to play basketball for his high school basketball team. Wouldn't you like to know who that coach is? Michael Jordan once famously said these words, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I've been entrusted to make the game-winning shot, and I missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. You see, my friends, failure is a part of life. It's a part of life. It's not whether or not you fail. It's what you do after you fail that makes the big difference. We all fail. Success often comes after significant fail, a failure. So can I just encourage you? Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid when, man, I tried really hard and it all just kind of Nothing worked out the same way I, I intended to go. Because growth in life happens by failing often, failing fast, and then learning from your mistakes. So please understand this. Failure is not a personal indictment. Failure is an opportunity. You know, if we can just make a shift in our hearts and our minds spiritually and emotionally, when I fail, it does not mean I'm this horrible, awful person that I can't do anything good. Failure is an opportunity to learn and to grow and then do something different about it next time. That's what failure is. And so this all comes down to how you deal with failure. When life just does not go your way, when everything that you planned falls apart, when things happen to you that you just did not expect to happen to you, how do you deal with it? How do you process it? And how do you move forward? You know, after Jesus rose from the dead and, he, and before he ascended back into heaven, we find the disciples going back to their normal lives. They went fishing. They didn't know what else to do. They're like, we're just going to go fishing. And they've been through one of the most traumatic life situations. They experienced Jesus being arrested, beaten, and crucified on the cross. And then they saw him being raised back to life. And then here they were. They probably just wanted to get back to some sort of sense of normalcy. They just wanted to get back to what they used to know. And I think as we sit here, many of us are in that same situation, aren't we? 
especially if two years of what seems like a train wreck in our world, all we want is, can I just get back to some sort of sense of normal? What is normal, though? Ever thought about that? I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I'm like, boy, if we could just get back to normal, that would be great. But, but what is normal? What is normal? And here the disciples were in that situation. Everything they thought for the past three and a half years with following Jesus and walking with him were just kind of turned upside down. And here they faced kind of an awkwardness, a crossroads, a what now moment. And in that what now moment, all they wanted to do was let's get back to fishing. Let's get back to what we know. Maybe we can have a good day and be successful. And in John 21 verse 3, Peter says, I'm going out to fish. He told the rest of the disciples in the gang. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. Here's the classic line, but they caught nothing. Failure. Guys, you have to realize, these were professional fishermen. This wasn't Bill Balbach going out down the lake and throwing out, casting a line fishing. Okay? You come with me, more than likely you're going to be sitting there for a long time. These were professional fishermen. They knew what they were doing. And here they spent all morning and they caught nothing. So just imagine, all you want is some sort of victory in your life. All you want is some sort of sense of normalcy. So you try to go back to what you know so that you can try to be successful in that department at least. And all of a sudden you realize, even in what I know, even what I think I can do, I can't do it anymore. Failure. And then before you know it, because we get into that rut that I'm sure the disciples were in that moment, we, feel our, we just feel like that's who I am. I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. I can't accomplish anything. Look how awful I am. Have you ever been there? I think many of us have. And some of you might be there right now. You just think you're a failure because everything I touch doesn't work out. Everything I try to just falls apart. Like Michael Jordan, I miss every shot. But what if Michael Jordan gave up? What if Jerry Seinfeld never went back on that stage? What if Albert Einstein believed all the critics? Now think about it. Failure is not an indictment. Failure is an opportunity. These disciples, they were in a moment of failure. And then the very next verse, it says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was him. They did not realize that it was Jesus. I don't know why they didn't recognize him. I mean, they were, they were roughly around 100 yards offshore. So maybe it was a little bit too dim of a light to see who it was or, or whatever it may be. Maybe they're just too caught up in the fact that, you know what, we just did what we thought we knew what we could do and we failed at it and we're we're awful people. Maybe they were focusing on what they need to accomplish or maybe they were just overwhelmed with the moment. I don't know why they missed Jesus, but I think there's a lesson there because I think so often Jesus is in our presence, but we miss him. We miss him. Even in the moments where we feel broken and alone and feel like failures, Jesus is there. See, even when we don't realize it, Jesus is present. 
And there were the disciples. They did not realize their king, their, the person they were following for the past three years was in that moment. And so think about it. How often is Jesus in your presence, but we don't realize it? We're too overwhelmed with where we feel broken. We're too overwhelmed where we feel like life is just beating me down. That we don't realize Jesus, he's still there. He's still there. And in the very next verses, Jesus then yells out across the water. He goes, hey guys, what's going on? And they're probably getting a little frustrated because they don't know who this guy is over there. He's just some, you know, billy goat guy standing on the shore making fun of them, heckling them that they can't catch fish. And here they knew these Galileans, they could catch fish. They knew what they're doing. They're thinking, yeah, we're just out here hanging out. You having problems catching fish? What's it to you? Hey, why don't you do this? Throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Hey, buddy. Listen, let me tell you something. I know what I'm doing. We've already tried everything here. There's nothing over there. Try it. Throw your nets on the other side of the boat. I can just sense their reluctance, their frustration, their just, I just want to go home feeling. They're like, all right. So they threw the nets on the other side of the boat. And then the Bible says instantly they caught an overwhelming amount of fish, 153 fish to be exact. All night long, all morning, they caught nothing. They were failures. And in that instant, they caught so many fish, they didn't know what to do with it. And then all of a sudden, they realized, oh my goodness, I think that might be Jesus. Duh. Right? And then Peter gets so excited and he pulls his best Forrest Gump moment. He jumps into the water and he swims to the shore. You guys who are younger probably have no idea what that means. <laughs> Forrest Gump was a classic 90s movie, okay? But, but Peter jumped in the water. He was so excited because there was Jesus and he swam to the shore. And then everybody else was like, Peter, what? did you do that for? we got to row the boats. And they're rowing the boat back to the shore and they finally get to the shore. And then verse 9 of chapter 21, when they landed, when the rest of the disciples got there, they saw fire, burning coals. And there was a fish on it and some bread. There's something powerful in this verse. Very powerful in this moment. Because all morning, these men felt like failures. They felt, I can't achieve something. I can't even meet my own basic need. And then they got to the shore, and then there was Jesus already providing their needs. He knew what was going to happen. He knew how things were going to transpire. He's like, I got this. I'm already cooking your breakfast. I got you covered. Come on over. Let's hang out. Let's eat together. Let's, let's be, let's just spend some time. You see, Jesus is already working to meet our needs, even when you don't realize what those needs are yet. He's already going before you to take care of you if you just trust him. But I think if you're like me and probably like Peter and so many other people, you try to do it all on your own and you just end up back in the same boat. I'm failing again. I'm messing up again. When all along, Jesus has always been there. He always has been there. 
And can I just make a side note? I think this is an important side note because I think sometimes we struggle with Jesus because we want him to answer our wants, our needs, our prayers the way we want him to. But God's heart is not necessarily our heart. His desire is to drive us towards him. Remember the past two weeks we've been talking about Jesus' focus is to guide us on a path towards righteousness, right? To be right before God. So for that reason, God's not going to always answer your prayers the way you want them to or based upon what you want. He will always guide you towards what you need. And guess what you need? Him. Him. His focus is always to drive you towards him. You know, the disciples, they gathered around that fire that morning with Jesus. The food, the fish, and the bread, it really wasn't what they needed. You know what they needed? They needed that time with Jesus. The Bible doesn't really say what happened then, what their conversations were, or what flavoring they put on the fish All I can imagine is there's these men sitting around their Savior, just laughing, joking, maybe making fun of Peter jumping in the water and swimming ashore, just having a good old time because there in the presence of Jesus, they were made whole again. You see, we are made whole in his presence. Jesus is always there to meet our needs. And he'll meet it in different ways. He'll either meet it by directing us, directing our paths, just like he told the disciples, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and he will direct us towards the path that will meet our needs. Sometimes we don't listen, or sometimes we do. Or he will meet our needs by simply providing our need, just like how he provided the fish and the bread to eat. And sometimes he does a little bit of both. But make no mistake about it, in the presence of God, he will meet your need. He will always take care of you. And sometimes we're just so overwhelmed with our failures, with our disappointments in life, that we're just let down. And sometimes our failures affect other people. And some of you might be sitting here today and you're just realizing, I'm hurt because of how somebody else failed me. It all goes back to our relationships. And can I just tell you something? Jesus understands. Because around that fire, there was Peter. That same Peter who did his Forrest Gump impersonation and jumped in the water and swam to him. That same Peter, not long before that, was the very man who denied him. I can only imagine what Jesus was feeling, the man Jesus was feeling. Peter, you're sitting around, you're eating with me, you're hanging out with me, But let's not forget what you did to me. We need to deal with that. You see, sometimes we allow the hurt of others just to linger and it just beats us down. But you see, the Bible gives us some very great uh, steps and guidance into how to deal with relationships when when they're broken. We don't have time to get all into that today. But you know what? If we follow God's path, in appropriate relationships. We can find healing in those relationships, and Jesus did that. See, it starts with, you know what? We need to talk. We need to talk. And that's what Jesus did here. He began to deal with Peter's failure. But please understand this. 
what Jesus showed Peter is this. No matter what, I always love you. See, even when you fail, even when you mess up, even when you fall short, Jesus still loves you. I think someone needs to hear that today. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person. Run back towards him. And through his love, he will challenge you to make the next right choice back to him. And here Jesus challenges Peter publicly in front of all the disciples. There he is dealing with it right now. It's like the elephant in the room. Peter, we got to chat. And we're going to chat in front of all the other guys because guess what? They all know what you did anyways. So let's talk it out. And he said this in 21 verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus is going right to the heart. Peter, do you love me? And now, the phrase that Jesus used there, more than these, is a challenging phrase. And there's, there's different ideas of what that may be, mean. I mean, he could say, do you love me more than the disciples love me? But it just doesn't add up. It just doesn't line up with what we see in the rest of the Gospels. Jesus could have been saying, Jesus, do you love me more than your job, your fishing? Do you love me more than the fishing gear you have right here? And that could make some sense because he had all the fishing gear there and, and had all his stuff there. And so do you love me more than the stuff that you have? But it still does not quite line up with, with what we see going on here because there was no other negativity towards the fishing um, that they were doing. But the third option, Peter. Do you love me more than these disciples, than they do? This makes sense because Peter's the guy who is always very bold in his faith, who was always quick to jump out and, and boast about his faith. He was the one who said, my faith will never falter. My faith will never fall short. I will always be there. Even the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus, or Peter said that, I will die for you, Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. It was Peter who, when the guards came, cut off the ear of Malchus and when they, when they tried to arrest him. And it was also Peter who saying, I will never give up. But then he was the same Peter who just a few hours later disowned Jesus in the courtyard. And Peter's, Jesus kind of calling out Peter, okay, you made all these big claims. You had all the big talk. How much do you really love me, Peter? How much do you really love me? And you see, we see a very interesting usage of the Greek words of love here. You see, unlike in the American English language that has primarily just the one word for, for love, we see multiple, use, multiple words for love in the New Testament, in the Greek language. Jesus used the word agape. Agape is, you are my everything. So Jesus said, Peter, am I your everything? And Peter said, I like you like a brother. What an interesting response, isn't it? You know, this dialogue then went through another series of two questions. Same thing. Do you love me? Am I your everything? I'm not your everything. And then, and then Jesus was dealing with that agape love. You see, I think here that Peter was having a little bit of a battle of confidence. 
And that's the battle of failure. The battle of failure is to maintain our confidence. And here Peter was struggling with that. I can only imagine Peter was in that moment sitting around the fire and then Jesus says, Peter, am I your everything? Do you love me so much that you would give up your life for me? And the same thing you said to me the night before you that I was betrayed, the same words. Do you love me the same? And I think Peter's just thinking about all of his failures from that night to this morning. And he can't even look him in the eye. Have you ever been that where because of your failure, you're so ashamed of what you did, you know what you did, you know how you fell short, and you can't even look the person in the eyes because of your guilt. And there was Peter just looking down. Jesus, I love you like a brother. He can't even get up to the point, confidence enough to say, you are my everything because of all of his failures. And there the third time, Jesus then lowers it and says, okay, Peter, do you love me like a brother? Can we be friends? And still Peter cannot bring himself to to say anything more than I love you like a brother. You know, I think sometimes we focus more on our shortcomings than we do Jesus. Because in that moment, around that fire, Jesus, in all of his love, all of his goodness, and all of his mercy, was trying to express to Peter, I'm still right here. I'm still right here. But because of Peter's own guilt and shame, he couldn't even look up to the Son of God. He couldn't look into the eyes of this man he walked with for three years. All he saw was, I'm a failure. I messed up. Not good enough. And you know what? He might have been partially right. We're not good enough. But what makes us good enough was the man who was sitting across from him. His name is Jesus. And I think Jesus was trying to reveal to Peter in that moment, Peter, I'm still here. I'm still here. Do not let your failure define who you are. I'm still here. Do you love me? Because I still love you. I still love you. But if you love me, you've got to follow me. That's where he said, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Every time through this dialogue, we see Jesus respond with, okay, if you love me, then feed my sheep. In other words, now you have a responsibility to be my deliverance of my love and my grace and my mercy in this world as you move forward. But it all starts with being in his presence. You know, what consumes your life? In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Bible calls God a consuming fire. Yet I think so often in our life, we struggle with that because we see our failures, we see the disappointments in the world, and we are often just left with the question, why? Where are you, God? I mean, you said you're a consuming fire. You said you can do all these things for us, but where are you? And we begin to either question God or we walk away from God. So who is he in your life? But it all comes back down to what consumes your life. Is it your failures? Is it your hardships? Is it your disappointments? 
Because we are either consumed by God or we are consumed by the world. What consumes you? You know, the most fascinating thing about fire is that fire is sustained through heat that builds up and burns when it has enough fuel, the wood or oxygen, the air. And God is all-consuming. That's what the Bible says. He wants to consume every part of your life, every fabric of your being. As Jesus sat there across from Peter, he says, Peter, I want to be your everything. But what consumes you? Is it your success? Is it what you want in life? Is it your failures and disappointments? Or is it me? All of it needs to be brought to me. So think about it. Think about your relationship with Jesus. What ultimately fuels it? What fuels it? Is it being around other Christians? Is it doing your daily devotions? Is it listening to Christian music? Or is it something else? You know, think about it. What really breathes life into your faith? God wants to consume you. He wants to consume you. And he wants to make sure you are fueling the fire of him in your life. But the more you surround yourself with the world and other things and less with him, the world will consume you. And when failure happens, and it will, you will be more and more disappointed. You will be more and more broken down. You will be struggling with confidence. My friends, the God I serve and that I walk with is the God that gives confidence and he wants to give confidence in your life because he created you and he loves you desperately. Confidence is maintained when you fuel your fire so that God can can consume your life. That's where confidence is found, and that's where confidence is maintained. Peter was struggling in that moment. Why? Because he was so focused on his failure that he was unable to see God right in front of him. But the presence of God is always there if we allow him to consume our life. Hebrews 12 says this, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God wants to consume your life so that you can experience his consuming fire throughout your life. Life is like a marathon. There's good days and bad days. Days when things will go your way and quite honestly, days when it just won't. We can't really change that. But how we respond to that makes a big difference. Who we run to makes a significant difference. It's all about endurance. It's all about maintaining spiritual endurance that we run back to him. See, endurance is just controlled patience. I'm an impatient person. Just ask my family, right? Because when things don't go my way, it's like, what's the problem? But the more we learn how to have controlled patience, we will have the ability to endure everything that comes our way. And when we fail, it's about getting back up and running back to him because he is there. What are the things that fuels your fire, that fuels your relationship with him? Maybe some of you need to start really doing those daily devotions, Have daily encounters with Jesus. What does that look like in your life? Whether it's reading the Bible, 
reading a devotion, you have the YouVersion Bible app, there's some great ways that you can connect with God on a daily basis. Make sure you're doing it. Experience him every single day. Allow him to consume your life. And I promise you, like Peter, in his moment of failure, in his moment of disappointment, God will restore you. And your failure will become an opportunity for something great. If you just trust him. Let's pray together. Father God, we just thank you because of how good you are. And Lord, in this moment, just may we experience you. Lord, I think so often we face failure. We mess up, we fall short, whether it's failure um, professionally or failing personally, Father God. We all mess up. But Lord God, in this moment, in those moments, may we just run towards you. And may we experience you. And may you, like you did for Peter, restore us. And Father God, may you consume us. May we make an effort every day to just have an encounter with you. That we will overcome our shortcomings. And to become what you've desired us to be. And that we can experience all of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.